0: Let me bring you into the context for where we left off, because it was a few weeks ago that we were studying the book of Mark together, and that I, since I've been gone for a few weeks, uh, you may not remember where we're dropping into, and I don't want it to feel like we're parachuting in without context. So. Uh, We left off Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, and it was this scenario where Jesus went into the synagogue and the Pharisees were watching what Jesus was doing because they wanted to accuse him. And so during that time, Jesus asks a man in the synagogue with a withered hand to stand up and to come forward. And as he does that, Jesus asked a few questions to confront and to provoke the religious leaders based on their traditions of the Sabbath, not the Sabbath law, but their interpretation. And he told the man to stretch forth his withered hand. And as he did, Jesus healed his hand. I bet you that was a great day for that man. His hand was totally, completely healed and made whole. And it was at this time that the Pharisees were so provoked that it says they went out of the synagogue and they conspired with the Herodians, which was a minor political party loyal to King Herod. They conspired with that group of people as to how they might kill Jesus. That was verse 6, Mark chapter 3, and that's where we left off. As a result of this, Jesus and his disciples, they fled from that place, not because they were afraid per se, but Jesus was on mission and he was only here to minister for a short time. And so him and his disciples moved on from that place, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 7, and here's what the Word of God says. It says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, "'And beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon "'and a great number of people heard of all that he was doing "'and came to him, and he told his disciples "'that a boat should stand ready for him "'because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. "'For he had healed many with the result "'that all those who had afflictions "'pressed around him in order to touch him. "'Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, "'they would fall down before him and shout, "'You are the Son of God.' "'And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was.' And he went up on a mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom they gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, who he gave the name Sons of Thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we walk through this passage today, what I would like to do is observe Jesus' interactions with two groupings of people. And we're going to look at the grouping of the crowd, obviously general grouping of people, and then we're going to look at what I'm calling the committed. And I want to contrast Jesus' interaction with them and their response to Jesus hopefully for the purpose of us becoming more committed to Christ, which is our obvious desire as we gather around his word today. But let's first look at Jesus and the crowd, which we read about here in verses 7 through 12. Now, it says specifically in verse 7 that Jesus withdrew to the sea. We know this is the Sea of Galilee. And he goes there with his disciples, and it says, "...a multitude of people follow him from Galilee." Most scholars tell us that there was probably around 10,000 people at this time gathered around Jesus. So you have to picture An incredible amount of people. I don't know if you think of a crowd, just the disciples. Sometimes when we read the Bible, in our minds, we think there's like 50 people or 60. By this time, there was probably 10,000 people. And although the religious leaders certainly were not gathering uh, to meet with and hear from and be healed by Jesus, that does not mean that the common folk, come on, you and me, were not still gathering around Jesus. They certainly were. They were coming from everywhere. Now, you might remember that crowds gathering during this time in society was not a positive thing because you have the religious elite, the religious or the ruling leaders, and also the Roman government are keeping their eyes on these type of gatherings because they would see this as a little bit of a fearful thing perhaps because there could be an insurrection. And so they're always watching movements of people and crowds of people in case something were to rise up from within. And so crowds were not necessarily a positive thing. In fact, a lot of times um, it was a negative thing and would provoke a lot of response from those who were in authority. But we see a couple things here from these passages. And first is the crowds came from everywhere. We read here in verse seven and eight from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. The Bible mentions all of these places. A couple of them are cities and a few of them are just regions. It's like saying from Federal Way, a city, and then it would be like saying the South Sound region. Well, that's a lot of cities, all right? That encompasses an incredible amount of area because Judea, Jerusalem, and Edomia are from the south. The regions across the Jordan are east. Tyree and Sidon are from the north. And so Mark is basically telling us that people were coming from all over the map. I mean, that's basically what he's trying to tell us. And in case you're not sure about how far people had to walk, we're talking five miles and up to 80 miles away. Now, they didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles or a light rail system, which I think at some point Federal Way may have. We prophesy that into existence today, but there's a bit of concrete to prove it might be on its way. But they didn't have any of those modes of transportation and so we remember that people had to walk. And in some cases, they had to walk five days to get to Jesus. Now, I'm just trying to put this out there for our consideration. People were gathering around Jesus and it wasn't some small thing. They had to pack up, they had to get everything ready, they had to square up their job and their family and all of that and travel five days knowing that they're gonna have to go five, six, seven days back. And so this is a very significant thing Mark is mentioning here, and we have to see it as such. And the second part of this that we want to observe is that the crowds came to see or experience something, and I'm bringing that up because of what verse 8 says. Verse 8 says that they were coming because they heard of all that he was doing. This is a motivating factor of those that were standing before Jesus, that were traveling five, six days to see him, when people heard What Jesus was doing, it caused them to hope for themselves. But what we see from the crowds, not just in this passage, but we've got to get used to the terminology of the crowd because we're going to read it another 80 to 100 times in the Gospels. It will refer to the crowds again and again. And what you find is some people come to Jesus because they have hope for an outcome. Obviously, they come to hear from Jesus They want to hear him teach because nobody teaches like him. They come to validate their hope. Maybe he's the Messiah. People are wondering if he is. But also, they come to receive healing and deliverance. People have physical needs. It's a focal point, and it says it right here. In fact, let me read this to you again. It says, For Jesus healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Now, just a little point right there, because I like this. Anytime unclean or demonic spirits, they're trying to name Jesus. You are the son of God. It's sort of trying to usurp authority over him. But don't you love every time hell exerts its supposed or counterfeit authority that heaven takes over. Jesus just says, be silent. That's all he needs to do. And that's exactly what light does to darkness. When darkness shows up, light dispels the darkness. When evil tries to speak, Jesus silences the evil. He has power and authority over all unclean spirits. That's just a little caveat. That's a little addendum. I just want to mention that. The language here says that people were pressing around him for a touch, and it suggests an environment where people were practically crushing him. And this is why Jesus told his disciples, hey, get the boat ready. I might have to hop in the boat because of the crowd. People lose their minds sometimes when they have a physical need. I I, I want you to hear this the way that I hope I'm, I'm able to convey this. But this picture shows us such a desperation from people that have a very real physical need. Now, we must say, because some of us live in chronic pain, And so, can we be honest today? Chronic pain is a very living voice to all of us. Chronic pain tries to dictate what we do, where we go, how we feel, and what we can't do. We understand that. And so, when we have real physical needs, we certainly want that to change. We want our physical circumstances to change, and Jesus had the power to do so. So, we understand people would gather around him And they often were prioritizing their physical need above their spiritual needs. It's one thing to come to Jesus because you have a physical need, but it's another thing to constantly come to Jesus only because you have physical needs. He prioritizes our spiritual need above our physical need without putting down the fact that we have the physical needs. Now, maybe we are not a type of people where we relate to this because we would gather around, there's no physical Jesus, but we sort of gather around the idea of rescue or the idea of healing, and we we don't gather in such a way where we pray around each other, but it's easy for us to sort of back away from this story and say, you know, I don't act like that. I don't think like that. I don't have a crowd mentality. I don't treat Jesus this way. But I do think we can relate to the fact that we place a very high priority over our physical healing, our physical well-being, our temporary uh, circumstances, we place a very high priority on that. And I was just looking up, for example, I was looking up the highest paid professions in America. And this is like a long-standing thing. And, and again, if you're in the medical profession, I mean no offense by this, but I'm just saying as a factual thing is that the highest paid professions in America, almost the top 10 are in the medical industry. And the lowest paid are perhaps teachers and clergy. And it sort of shows you that in our society, even though we're not a people that need to gather around with the advance of modern medicine, we still, you can still see that we place such a high priority on our physical well-being and our physical needs, even above our spiritual needs most often. But the Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't necessarily put down the fact that we have these needs, but it does place a higher priority on our spiritual needs and the fact that our soul is in better shape than our body. Amen. We have a body, but every one of us is going to get a new body if you believe in Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that? Listen, I want a spirit-filled titanium upgrade someday. Paul would say it this way. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Or put it this way, it should be. But if we place our physical needs above our spiritual needs, it doesn't necessarily mean that our inner man is being renewed day by day. This is the focus of Paul. This is what he's saying. We don't lose heart whether that's by physical persecution or simply because we're physically decaying. We know that we're going to physically die, but we shall live because of the resurrection of Christ if we believe upon him. And so Paul is saying that we need to prioritize our spiritual health above our physical needs. Well, why am I mentioning that? Because what you notice again and again about the crowds is they have a mentality where they're willing to like almost crush Jesus. I mean, they lose their minds because their physical needs are so much their priority that they're not even considering who it is that they're seeking to receive from. And it is possible even in our day to separate the gift from the giver. It's still possible in our day to do that. They were doing that clearly because some people will walk away from Jesus just as fast as they came to Jesus when they don't get what they want. That's a crowd mentality. That's a crowd mentality. Let me put it to you like this. Anybody ever watch Gilligan's Island? I'm sorry for bringing it up in church. I apologize in advance. Somebody had a flashback. I love it. All right. Let's just say that you and I were stranded on a a desert isle and there was a crowd of us. There were a lot of us and we were there for a long time and there's no radio, there's no cell phones, there's no cell tower. We can't phone a friend. None of that is available to us, and we're stranded there, and there's no way for us to get rescue. And then off in the distance, we see a rescue helicopter coming, and we're so excited. The rescue helicopter is coming, and as they land, I don't think anybody would have to pray about whether or not we're jumping in the rescue helicopter. I think we would crowd around the door of the rescue helicopter and probably not be as considerate to one another trying to get our place on the rescue helicopter but you can love rescue and you can be thankful that you're rescued and not love the rescue pilot. It is possible today for us to love the idea of rescue, to love the idea of healing, to want provision, to want to get something and not love the person that gave it to us. It is possible for us to want to be saved, to want to have forgiveness, to want eternal life, to want to get healing, to want to have all that Jesus will and does want to give to us in our life and separate that from our love from the giver himself. It is very possible. It's a crowd mentality. It's a crowd mentality. And it exists with us today. We see it in some places, some doctrines will actually teach this. I have a podcast coming out on the Word of Faith movement, and I believe that there's many in that movement for the last two or three decades that have been teaching this, where man is the center, and God just wants to bless you. God just wants to make you healthy and wealthy and happy, and it's all about you, and it's not about the glorification of Jesus. It's not about giving our lives in full surrender. It's not about whatever He gets out of it. It's what we get out of it. There's a lot of movements that cater to that, and I'm not here to suggest that God doesn't want to touch our lives. God doesn't want to bless us. God doesn't want to minister to us. God doesn't want to heal us. We believe in the healing power of Jesus. We believe that God cares about every hair on our head, however few they might be. We, care. we know that God loves us. We understand that and we believe it, but it is not the greatest priority of our lives. And so I came this morning to tell you that the greatest priority of our lives is Jesus himself, The third observation from this section about the crowd, though, is that Jesus always ministered to the crowds. Ben, don't rail too hard on the crowds. Let me back up for a minute then. We all start out in the crowd. I mean, at least the way I'm using it as an illustration today, we all start out in the crowd. We all start out coming to Jesus because we have needs, and that never stops. I'm not railing against this entirely. I'm simply saying it cannot be our priority. I'm simply saying it cannot be the focal point of our relationship with him. We all start out in the crowd and it says here in the text that Jesus healed, Jesus delivered, Jesus provided, amen. He never changes. He loves, he desires. He never was exasperated from the crowd. Oh, here they come again. The disciples were. The disciples wanted to get Jesus away from the crowd. And Jesus was like, no. And the Bible says he had compassion on them. That's his heart. That's who he is. That's what he's like. But can I tell you that his true desire was to convert people that had that mentality so that they didn't stay there You can come there, but you cannot stay there. In other words, if he doesn't convert us to become committed disciples of Jesus, then there will always be something wrong at the very foundation of our Christianity. In fact, our Christianity will be superficial. If we're a back and a forth people, what will happen is our Christianity will be superficial and our relationship with Jesus will be about what we can get out of it. See, the crowd was, they looked at Jesus as a means to an end. They came to get what they wanted. That's how it was for most of them, unless they were converted to this committed discipleship posture. So yes, Jesus still ministers to our needs, but his goal and his desire is to move us beyond that into a place of being committed disciples. So let's look now from verse 13 to 19 at Jesus and the committed. Luke's version of this in Luke chapter six, it tells us that Jesus left the crowds, went up onto the mountain, and he spent all night there praying. Jesus went, and this isn't in my notes, but it is an important point. Before Jesus made a big decision, like appointing the 12 apostles, it says that he spent all night in prayer. Now, if you just want to pull out a point that we can observe, it's important for us to spend time in prayer before we make big decisions. (laughs) Come on, say amen today. If you're like me, sometimes you tend to make decisions, and then while the decision's being made, or after the decision has been made, and the consequences come, you go, Oh, God, help me in this thing that is going on right now. And He will. He will help us right there. But I think He wants to teach us that it would be better for us if we learn how to pray, then make the decision, and then continue to ask Him for help as we've done that a little bit more properly. But Jesus spent all night in prayer, and and then he comes down to appoint the 12 apostles. Let me read to you verse 13. He went up on the mountain, summoned those who he himself wanted. They came to him and he appointed the 12. Luke's version of this says, as apostles, special messengers sent ones, delegates for a special purpose. That's what apostle means. So that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. The contrast here between Jesus and the crowd and Jesus in the committed, I think, is noteworthy. So the first thing here is Jesus calls people out of the crowd to be with him. It's, I say it a little differently than it's on the screen, but hear it this way. Jesus calls people out of the crowd to be with him. Before we hear anything else about what it means to come into fellowship and relationship and discipleship with Jesus, we have to hear his desire. He called those that he wanted. He called those that he wanted to be with. I mean, this is profound, this is powerful, and I think that the first qualification for any position of leadership or even right representation of the one that we're following, it must be that we're with Jesus, that we would know his heart, that we would know his ways, that we would know his words, that we would absorb that into our spirit. And it's what would exude out of us that we would represent him rightly and righteously. And how could we do that if we didn't know him personally? How is it even possible to represent anyone that you don't spend ample amount of time with? How, can you even, how could you do that? You can't. You couldn't represent anybody well if you didn't know them well. You just couldn't. And so Jesus calls them to be with him. Did you know he doesn't actually commission them till Mark 6? I mean, we're not even going to read that for like at least another couple months or month or whatever it is. He doesn't say go. He calls them first to be with him because that's what he wants with. He wants something with them before he wants something for. From them or through them. And I think this is really a powerful principle because we know spiritual power comes from closeness to Christ. I mean, whatever it is that we think we're going to do for Jesus, it's not going to come because we're intellectual or we're smart or we think well of ourselves or we're good looking or we're gifted. It's going to come because we have a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Intimacy with Jesus brings about spiritual power. And I would say to you, you can often tell when people have been with Jesus. Maybe not all the time, but there's something about people who have been with Jesus. They may not articulate themselves the best way. They may not be the best speakers. They may may not be the best looking or dressed or whatever. All of that stuff is the veneer. But when you're with someone who's been with Jesus, there's an anointing on their life. You can tell, dare I say, you can feel it. You can feel it. There's an anointing on their life. Well, what is that? That anointing comes from Jesus Christ. That does not come from a man or a woman. That comes from Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were put in jail for preaching about Jesus Christ. And as they came before the elders, the ruling council to give their plea in response to their questions, it says this about those who witnessed their words and their actions in Acts 4.13. It says, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John... They understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. See, they knew something about Jesus. They knew that Jesus was different, and they despised. Many of the ruling council, they despised Jesus. They wanted to put him away. It's that spirit of antichrist that is in the world even today. And they recognize that what was on Jesus, I mean, there's a touch of that on these guys too. And they're like, wow, we recognize they've been with Jesus for a while. They could tell there was something coming out of them that reminded them of him and they did not like it. And they said, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. See, they thought if we can tell you to stop speaking in his name, then that thing that we sense on you will go away. Well, it won't go away. Because it wasn't on them, it was in them. And it was coming out of them. They didn't like that. It was irritating them. I thought we put that guy to death. Oh no, he dispersed himself into a body. He dispersed himself into other people and now you're starting to sense it on all these other people who are carrying that same anointing that you couldn't put to death. And so they observed the confidence that was on Peter and John and they thought to themselves, "Man, this reminds us of Jesus. Because you can tell when somebody's been with Jesus. Jesus called them to be with him. Jesus wanted them not just to be individuals representing themselves with their own flavor and their own style. Certainly, he loves us. Certainly, we all have a little bit of a different personality, but coming through that better be Jesus if we're going to represent him. And they committed, the committed, our first given to being with Jesus, has got to be our heart. It's got to be our heart. Before we set out to do anything for him, we've got to be with him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 27.4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. Remember, one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Now, I'm not relating that to a church building. The temple is where the presence of God was. This is talking about being close to God's presence, with him, knowing him personally. I'll be as close to him as I can get. What does that look like? Well, for David, this is what he would say. The psalmist would write, "One thing I desire, and that I will seek, one thing." Have you ever read this terminology in the Bible before? One thing. Luke chapter 10, Jesus is in, is in the house with Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And it says that it doesn't say what Lazarus is doing. The man's just not part of the picture right there, but it says Martha is hurried around doing all of the things she's preparing. And and, and that's all good. She's she's, she's administrating. She's setting up the table. She's getting the food ready. She's doing all of that. And it says, what about Mary? That she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. I love that. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. And Martha, man, she is so upset at Mary. She's like, Mary, you super spiritual somebody. Always trying to be so spiritual. That's how I hear it in my heart, you know she's upset. And she finally gets the nerve to say something to Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Jesus, she ain't helping me. And he says, Mary, Mary, or Martha, 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 you're worried and distracted by many things, but only one thing is necessary. Everybody say one thing. thing. Only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the better. I want to ask you a question today. Have you chosen the better? A lot of things, just, what's the sin of our culture right now? It's hurry, worry, and busy. We have this relationship that we're invited into with Jesus. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. Closeness with Christ brings everything into our life and fulfills us. He fulfills us, satisfies the, quenches the thirst, satisfies the hunger, He is the desire of the nations, and yet often we don't find ourselves walking into the doorway of that intimacy, and Jesus is always calling us faithfully to more, to deeper and more meaningful relationship. One thing, sitting at his feet, absorbing his word. This is what we want. Jesus calls us to be with him, not just the apostles, but us as well. And secondarily, Jesus calls people out of the crowd so he could send them to minister Verse 14 says, not only that he called them to be with him, but also that he might send them out, which is a natural consequence of being with Jesus. You're going to say what he's saying. You're going to do what he's doing when you know who he is. He wanted to send them out. This is the same language in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Mark chapter 16, which we'll read in a year from now. He says, go and preach the gospel to all creation. Man, does that mark your life? I've never been just such an evangelist. I mean, I love to talk about Jesus with people. I would say most of the time. But I I do, I enjoy talking to people about Jesus. But does it mark us? Oh man, I can't wait to tell people about Jesus. I'm always trying to find the on-ramp in a conversation. And I know it might be a little annoying to some, but it's like, I just can't help it because I love him. And I want people to know him. You understand, it's marked me. The word of God has marked us, you know. I want him to send me out to minister and I don't have to be so great at it. I'm not looking to be some expert. I just want to be a person that so loves him that I'm not ashamed to talk about him. Isn't that right? He called them to be with him that he might send them out to minister. Practically speaking, Jesus couldn't minister just one person in one body. So what did he do? He delegated. Look at the crowds pressing in on him, right? And so he's like, I got to do something about this. And so he delegates to 12. And it doesn't stop. I don't know how many are in this room or online, but he keeps delegating. Yes, these were the direct apostles of Jesus, and there will be no other direct apostles of Jesus. But that apostolic call is still on the church today. It's still here that we would be special messengers that we would be delegates that we would be those he delegates his authority and his mission and his ministry to that he might send us out to minister as well he's doing the same thing this holy delegation that you and I are a part of that we too might minister in the name of Jesus and thirdly i just want to throw this point out because to me it just stares me in the face when i think about who the disciples converted into apostles actually are. Jesus calls ordinary people out of the crowd to do extraordinary things. He called 12 guys to be special messengers to carry on his mission, but religion has enshrined them so much so that it's easy to separate ourselves from these common folk. And And not all of us in the room might carry this inferiority, like when we approach Scripture and we look at these guys and we think, oh, I could never be like that. Not everybody thinks like that, but some of us might because religion has enshrined a tax collector and a zealot. We're talking about a radical person who wants to overthrow Rome by any means necessary. Kill him if we have to. So he takes a tax collector and a zealot and puts them in the same room because why not? (laughs) You ever sat next to somebody at church or, I mean, I just don't get her and I just don't get him. Well, Jesus smiles on that. He takes the zealot, he takes the tax collector, he throws a few fishermen in there and six other people we know very little about. So that's just the general rest of us. (laughs) This looks like the church for the rest of us. We all fit in to this holy delegation. He uses ordinary people and that is very comforting to me because they're not trained as teachers in the law, although he trains them. They did not come from the religious leadership of that day, but they became the greatest leadership of all time. Twelve ordinary men from a variety of backgrounds brought together to be Christ's apostles. Perhaps the greatest virtue that they have is their response to his call. They don't really bring much. You and I don't really bring much to the equation. We just give back to God what we are. He made us. He created us. Well, God, I'll give you what I am. Here's five loaves and here's two fish, and it's about enough to feed myself. That's all I brought today. I brought enough to feed myself, but I'll give it to you. I don't know what you can do with it, and he just goes... I'll take what you got and I'll make it a lot. Jesus can do a lot with our little. We can't. We have enough to feed ourselves. If we keep it to ourselves, it will only feed ourselves. But if we give him our life, he will break our life and he will distribute our life to people around us and bring life. That's what he does. That's what he does. Why? Because it's him. Because it's him doing what you and I just can't do. And so there's no reason for us to sit on the bench and act like, well, I just, I'm not gifted, I'm not talented, I'm not able. I'm Well, the question is, are you willing? Because that's really all that matters. That's the virtue that these guys bring to the table. And yes, we enshrine them and we call them saints so-and-so, but I look at them and I think, man, I'm one of them. Love it. But how do we respond to this? And today, I, I simply want to call you to two things, practically speaking. And, and the first is we move beyond a crowd mentality into a committed Relationship or into committed discipleship. What, what I'm talking about is that some of us, many of us in the room, yeah, man, we're disciples of Jesus. We we're not perfect disciples of Jesus, but we want to follow him with all of our heart. Amen. Keep going. Keep going, right? But while you're following Jesus, can I encourage you to evaluate your life with the Lord? That every time we open the word of God, we go, Lord, whatever in me is not as you want it to be. Would you evaluate my heart and would you make me more like you? He wants us to have that heart. And so today we listen to things like he calls us to be with him. Do you want to be with him? And and if you say yes to that, but maybe you're not, say, Lord, break through whatever is in the way so that I can be with you because I certainly want to represent you. But maybe the reason that we aren't wanting to or zealous for representing Jesus or talking about him with other people, maybe it's because we're just not with him like we want to be. And so we feel this distance with him. And so, man, I don't want to talk about him if I'm not with him all that often. It's sort of like marriage. Like if you're not investing into your marriage and you're not strengthening your marriage and you're not praying with your spouse and, and you're not making that advance, it's like the last thing you wanna do is talk to somebody else about how good their marriage should be, right? You don't wanna represent marriage because you feel like you're not making any advances with your own spouse in that relationship because you know there's a sense of, of loss when you're talking about it. You're like, there's something wrong in my own way, so I don't want to tr- show you the way. But Jesus just wants to call us out of that guilt and say, I just want to be with you. And if you spend time with me, watch what I'll do in you. You don't have to produce. You don't have to manufacture. You don't have to make this up. I just want to be with you. And so we want to evaluate our life with the Lord. And when I say with the Lord, I mean our time with him, our life with him, our relationship with him, because if he's calling us to anything, it's a better relationship. And then out of that relationship will come these other things that he's telling us to do. Out of that closeness will come spiritual power. Out of that closeness will come our compassion for others and it will just flow more naturally. We're trying to kickstart all of these things for God, but he's calling us to be with him. And out of being with him, those things that we're trying to kickstart so often or maybe do or strive toward, they just automatically flow like a river and it's uncontainable, it's unstoppable. It just comes out of an abiding, growing, more meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you hear a call of anything today in evaluating your life before the Lord, hear that he's drawing us to him. And what a better time to do that than 21 days of prayer and fasting. And maybe you, I bring that up and, and I want to, this is our last week of a time of prayer and fasting in this season. I don't know what that's been like for you, but one thing that I have gained out of this time um, is I have been a little bit more face-to-face with my weakness, is sort of how I felt. I, I haven't had, an, no angels came to me. Uh, I've actually felt just hungry, you know, a lot of the time. But there is something that I have noticed, and I started noticing this this last week even though I was sick, but even in my sickness, I felt my weakness. And in my weakness, as I was reaching out to the Lord, I felt sent more sensitive to the Holy Spirit I just did. I felt more weepy, and, and I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm on a once a year plan for crying, you know, and so, but there's, uh, that's not where I want to be, I'm just saying, you know. But I just have felt like the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit is being renewed, and I can sense Him. I can sense His affection for me. Do you ever feel the affection of God for you? Whew. because if there's anything that draws us to him it's to know his love for us he said this he called those that he wanted he called those that he wanted to be with him I read that and I thought man that's all I really want to say today I said a lot more than that didn't I but he's calling us because he wants that with us can I read you something sobering though as I close I'm going to do it anyways but I'd like your agreement can I do that in Luke's version of this, it's very sobering. When you think about the crowd and the committed, Luke ha- adds more to the story, and so does Matthew in a bit, but, but this more pointed. In Luke, it says that he comes down from the mountain, he appoints his apostles, and then he's ministering to the crowd. And as he ministers to the crowd, it's, it's an abbreviated version of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 through 7. He gives all these sermonettes. He talks about prayer and giving and all of those things. And I'm sure people were like, yes, amen. The crowds were like, amen, amen. Get on with the healing. Get on with the deliverance. But he gives all these sermonettes. But you know, if you, if you read it, read it, please. In Luke 6, he starts to give these harder and harder things. Like, if you really want to follow me, then you need to love your enemies. And I can imagine people were like, huh? I, 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 I'm, it started to do something in the crowd. Picture the crowd. They're coming. They want to be healed. They want to be delivered. Some, their hearts are drawn because they want Jesus. But he starts to say these things. Luke 6, it's in the context, the same story that we're reading today. He starts to tell them very difficult things. I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to give to others even when you don't feel like it or don't want to. He, he said, I don't want you to just love people that love you back. I don't want you to scratch the back of somebody who scratches your back. I want you to love people that hate you. And I can imagine the crowd is getting confronted by all this. And then Jesus says this, which is like a sobering statement. He says in Luke six forty six, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's how he closes this. And that's not a passage where he just wants to guilt people that really love him. It's a passage where he's trying to bring up a sober reality for the people that just want something from him. That when we come to Jesus, if it isn't just Jesus that we want, that it's something is going to get confronted every time we go towards him because he wants more with us than that. Not just a gift for you. I'm, I'm the giver and I want to be with you. And, and then in John chapter 6, Jesus had just talked about, I'm the bread of life. And if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, now, you have no part with me. And the longer Jesus talked, the more disturbed the crowds became. And then it says this, it says in verse 66, as a result of this, many disciples, it does not say many of the crowd. It says many disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That's what it says. Jesus is not meaning to be harsh with anyone. He is speaking to the reality that some come with the wrong motivation. And if they don't get converted from that motivation to the one of wanting him more than anything else, then this is the inevitable consequence. They will stop. Have you seen people stop following Jesus because they didn't get what they wanted? Is that a reality in our world today that people, if we don't get what we wanted, if he doesn't heal me, if he doesn't provide for me, if I don't get the job, if I don't get the thing that I prayed for, then Jesus just isn't enough? And I'm going to stop following him. It happens. It happens today. It says many stop following him. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away. Also, do you? And Simon Peter, Simon, we love you, man. He said back to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have believed and come to know that you are worth it all. And it is not just what we get out of you. It's that we have you. Peter said something so right that it's got to be, it's got to mark us. That when something doesn't pan out in our life, when things don't go the way that we prayed or wanted or desired in this life, we realize that Jesus has given us more than what happens in this life. He has given us life because we have him. And that's what it's all about. So when you look at the crowd and you look at the committed, what we realize is that sometimes we can have a crowd mentality. And although Jesus wants to minister to us, and he will, and he does, things don't always make sense or go the way we want, we have to realize that we have everything because we have Jesus. And it is in that place that we trust him with everything, and we thank him because of who he is, and that he gave himself to us. Amen? Amen. We evaluate our life with the Lord, and today we freshly surrender to the Lord Jesus. Would you stand, and let's do that together, would you? Listen, no matter where you're at today, no matter what you're walking through, whether you're on the easy side or on the difficult side, whether you're experiencing the love, affection, the grace of God, and there's a smile on your face, or it's a difficult time and you're feeling like, man, I haven't experienced his presence for a while, heard his voice. I just want to tell you, no matter what, our response to him is surrender. That's it. And so do that with me today as the church of Jesus Christ. Let's surrender fresh to Jesus. Just put out your hands before the Lord and do this to him. Father, we surrender to you. We surrender to you. You're worthy of all of our worship. You're worthy of all of our life. Lord, we don't want a crowd mentality. That's not who we are. We want to be people of your word, people of your spirit, people that follow you no matter what because we are resilient and we recognize that in you we have everything that we could have ever wanted and we are so utterly thankful that even some of us in our chronic pain, even some of us in our difficulty and uncertainty, Lord, none of that matters right now because we recognize that we've laid hold of you as you have laid hold of us. And so today, we hold nothing back. We surrender to you. Take our life, whatever our life is, take it, use it for your glory, for your glorious purposes. Let us not be held back. And it is in that context and frame of mind that we now pray for our needs as well. I pray, Father, for anyone that needs healing today. If you need healing, just let's receive from him. We pray for healing in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that healing virtue would flow from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet. And that just like what we read about in the Gospels, as you ministered, Lord, to the crowd, would you come and minister to your committed here today? Would you minister to our bodies, Lord? We thank you that you're healing. Somebody has like a hip problem or whatever, and it's really caused you great pain as you're sleeping. We speak to that in the name of Jesus, be healed. Thank you, Lord. We pray somebody you have, your neck has been kinked for at least three weeks. And it just, it hurts to kind of turn around and it comes and it goes, but it's really been bothering you. And you're just feeling like you can't do the things that you were doing and you don't even know how it happened. Lord, we pray healing over that right now in the name of Jesus. Somebody today, you have this tension in your family and it feels like it's just continued to grow and get worse this tension that is just surmounting and it's growing. And you just like, I I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I did anything for this. But the Lord is saying, I want to minister through you. And it's through your humility that you're going to win over and you're going to bring reconciliation. So Lord, we pray for your strategy and not our own. And that we would not be hurt by, but we would be hurt for the people in our family. Put forgiveness in our hearts, Lord. Help us to not allow a bitter root to grow up. We reject that right now, and we choose Christ-likeness in our circumstance. It's all we want is to rep- represent you rightly. So come, Holy Spirit, and minister to us. Baptize us in your power. Lead us to Jesus, and lead us to be like Jesus. Thank you for Northwest Church. Father, I pray you bless us, strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. amen.